I'm going to ask Tim Moore to come up and read our scripture reading for this evening. So if you've got your Bible, you can go ahead and open up to the epistle to the Philippian church. Uh, chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 20. That's Philippians 1, 12 through 20. Janessa, come on up. Oh, yeah. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, thinking whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer once again. Father God, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you that uh, we can come to your word. Uh, we can see who you are. We can see the revelation of your son, Jesus Christ. Um, we can see the way you have worked in history and in and through your church. Um, God, as we read your words inspired by the spirit, um, God, we glean um, the things that you would have us to glean. We are taught the things that you would have us to learn. Um, God, we are encouraged by um, the things that you would have us to be encouraged by. And so we thank you for your word. We ask that you help us as we study Philippians tonight um, to receive from it what you would have for us. But we, we specifically pray um, during this time um, on this Lord's Day um, as we as we enter into a new season of school um, as students all over our county are are going back to to their public or private schools, they're starting back in their their homeschool groups or co-ops um, or whatever scenario they find themselves in. God, we ask that you would bless um, our students, that you would bless our teachers, that you would watch over them um, in each uh, school and, and context they find themselves in. Lord, that we recognize that. Um, the education of our children is is the front line of spiritual warfare in many cases. Um, that that the the hearts and minds of our children um, are the um, got the territory that um, Satan seeks to to conquer. Um, and it is the, the, the territory that we seek to defend, um, and to protect 
for for your word uh, and for your heart, for your gospel, that our children um, would be raised in the fear and admonition of the Lord, that they would know um, your word, that they would know the gospel by which they can be saved. God, help us to um, minister to the children of our of our community. Uh, God, we have to ask for a blessing on on Christian teachers who are going back into, in some cases, um, hostile environments, in some cases, not hostile, in some cases, um, opportunities that are very open um, to to uh, your word. Um, ministering in different ways to to students' lives. And so just help them, bless them, protect them, watch over them. God, let the plans of, of um, the devil fail, um, the ways that he seeks to encroach on our culture and on the lives of our children. God, we ask that you would hinder those plans and bring them to nothing, and that all the ways that um, the faithful are ministering and bringing the gospel into those those um, places, God, that you would prosper that, um, bless them in their de- endeavors, um, that you would till up the soil um, ahead of them, and that the seeds that they plant would would yield a crop twenty, sixty, a hundredfold. Uh, we thank you, Lord. Um, we ask for your protection and guidance in all these things. We ask them in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's jump back into Philippians. Um, so I want to kind of uh, zoom in on, on sort of an idea that I feel like I talk about pretty frequently in some way, shape or form. Uh, and, and we're going to again, but, but as you know, because I, I, I preach through these passages sort of, uh, expositionally, it's just the passages that continue to, to, um, it's the same ideas that continue to pop up in, in different ways oftentimes. And that is one of these tensions of particularly modern life, but probably of all time, and, and that is this, is how do we rightly present Christ and his truth to the world? Um, because we are painfully aware of the negative ways in which that happens in, in our world and culture, right? Um it connects back to that idea that we talked about in, in previous weeks of the interaction between truth and love. We are called to be people of both truth and love, and yet it seems like it is hard to honor both of those things at the same time. And again, we see many places in our culture where people fall to the extremes of one side or the other of that equation. So we, we certainly see t- churches that, that, or individuals that speak truth but they do so out of some sort of self-righteous, almost vengeful attitude of condemnation. And we go, yeah, yeah, I don't, I, that's not what I want to do, Lord. But then at the same time, we see um, other churches and individuals that are, are preaching uh, uh, love or grace in, in a way that Dietrich Bonhoeffer would call cheap grace. And that is to say they are preaching forgiveness without repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ. And so we go, yeah, we don't, we don't want to do that either, Lord. So how do we do that rightly, right? How do we speak the word of truth and love rightly in the world? Because what we find here in this passage is an interesting situation. Paul has found himself in a situation 
where the helpfulness of the things that he has said and done are being called into question. Um, Paul is being a witness for Jesus Christ in this situation where he finds himself, which is in under arrest in Rome. And there are people apparently in the church in Rome who are calling the whether or not what Paul is doing, is it beneficial, is it helpful, is it hurtful to the cause of Christ um, there in Rome, okay? And so again, as we mentioned last week, so we talked about how Philippians was, was a church that was founded on Paul's second missionary journey. He goes through Turkey, he gets to the Aegean Sea, he hears the Macedonian call in a vision, he goes over to the land that is called Macedonia, which we would think of as sort of being northern Greece kind of area or whatever, and the first church he starts is in the city of Philippi. But the letter to the Philippians is not at that time. This is later on in Paul's third missionary journey, where he is now in the city of Rome um, under what we presume to be house arrest, awaiting um, a time where he will stand before Caesar to give an account for, for these charges that have been laid against him. And so, whereas the church at Philippi was probably, you know, we don't know for sure, but probably founded somewhere around 50 AD. This is probably the year 62 AD, okay? So about 10 or 12 years later, the church at Philippi is established, and now Paul's in prison in, in Rome. And he says this in verse 12. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And so the first idea that I want to kind of present to you from this passage is this. When we are doing things or saying things or sharing with people, trying to speak truth into people's lives, trying to act in a loving way into people's lives, the first thing that I want you to realize is this, and it's something that you probably already know, is that God works through those things in ways that we may not have anticipated. Like we act and say and speak and serve in certain ways. And sometimes God does things with that that we would have never thought, we would have never planned ahead of time. So notice this. At the beginning, verse 12, he says, I want you to know, brothers, there seems to be this discussion in between the lines. There seems to be this discussion that has already been going on. Paul is speaking into, I want you to know something, brothers, objections that have already come to him. Um, and that gives us a clue to what's going on, I think, in this passage. It's likely that what's going on is Paul is starting to receive some blowback from the reality that he is in prison and on trial for his faith in the city of Rome. He's been arrested. He's been imprisoned. And the Roman Christians, again, remember, Paul didn't start the church in Rome. The church in Rome was already there before he got there from other believers, other missionaries who had come there and started churches there. And so now Paul shows up out of nowhere. And, and, but how does he come? The big famous Christian preacher, missionary, evangelist, he's under arrest in Rome, standing trial before Caesar. You remember the story of how he got there. Paul ends up back in Jerusalem. The Pharisees accuse him of various things. The Roman authorities arrest Paul. But before the trial can even really get going, before the evidence can be presented or whatever else, as a Roman citizen, Paul invokes his right to not stand trial before this backwater court, but to stand trial before Caesar himself. And so he goes to Caesar. We know that that didn't have to take place. It's that fact that even says in Acts chapter 26 that Agrippa, who was one of the, the, the governing officials there in, in Judea, 
Um, he said, man, the charges against Paul are all trumped up. He's not even doing anything wrong. It's obvious that it's the Pharisees who are jealous of him. This guy could have been released and gone home already. But because he has invoked his right to stand before Caesar, we're, we're in the system now, and he's got to see it to the end, all right? So Paul ends up in Rome um, to, to, to stand before Caesar. Um, but here's the problem, and here's what I think is the subtext going on, this discussion that's going on. Because it's not just Paul that's on trial now before Caesar. It is the Christian faith in many ways that is on trial before Caesar. And what is, is the believers in Rome are probably worried about is that certainly public opinion, but maybe even imperial edict is going to be influenced by the fact that Paul is now on trial and didn't even need to be, right? He shouldn't even be here. He doesn't even go to school here, right? Um, this isn't your place, Paul. And now you've brought all this drama and all this heat onto the Christian faith in the city of Rome. And so Paul's getting some criticism, all right? Now, let's think about this and bring it sort of, blow it up and bring it into our modern day context. Has another Christian ever said something or done something that you were concerned would cast Christianity in a bad light and ultimately make it harder for you to be a witness to, to a lost world. Has that ever happened to you? And the answer is, I would bet probably with social media every single day, right? If you get on any social media and look at what other Christians are saying, you're probably like going through, scrolling down, going, gosh, why? Why did, why did they have to say that? Why did they do that? Like they should have just kept their mouth shut or, Somebody else might say something and you might go, oh, that was really good. That was really, I appreciated that, that comment or something. I think that was really helpful or insightful or, or whatever. And so the answer is yes, I think we deal with that on a daily basis. But Paul says this. So that all that drama is going on, but this is what Paul says. Paul says his arrest has in fact not only not hindered or made the faith a liability in Rome, it has actually resulted in the advance of the gospel. The simple truth is this, and we all need to come to grips with this. You don't know how God is going to use things. Right? We have the best laid plans of mice and men. We have all these ideas and all these hopes about the way our words will be perceived and our actions will be received. And the reality is, is you don't know the outcomes. You don't know their effects. You don't know when seeds will be planted and you don't know when bridges will be burned. All right. Now, obviously, there's some situations in which you go, no, I knew the bridge was going to be burned in that one. Right. I came out swinging and I figured a bridge was going to be burned. But the truth is, is a lot of times we can go into it with completely good intentions, heartfelt care on a situation and find that it is received in a way that is completely not what we would have hoped for or expected on both sides, right? Sometimes good things come out of it we never would have thought. Sometimes bad things come out that we never would have expected. Um, for example, um, and this is this is something that I've experienced in ministry. So let's take three examples of false worldviews that are out there. Let's take the false worldview of the LGBTQ movement. Let's take the false worldview of the new age spirituality that we find nuggets of all through our culture. I don't know if you bet you guys, but man, 
I came in here one day and I sat down at my table to this right here. There's another table right here. And as I was finishing up, I was starting to pack up my stuff and a young man came and sat down on this table and he rolled out a mat and he started laying out stones and he started laying out cards. And then he put up a little sign and it said free tarot readings. And I was like, like, this is the Bible Belt, right? Like, this lies not in some basement in, like, downtown Knoxville. This guy thought that in Maryville, Tennessee, it was completely cool to set up a tarot card reading on a stage in a, in a coffee shop, all right? The New Age movement is alive and well and growing and multiplying in all kinds of various ways, okay? And then maybe a third group is the New Atheism. We don't see the new atheism. It's it's fallen on a little harder times, man. Like 10 years ago, the new atheism was the thing that we were, the whole world we were fighting against. And now it's sort of like people are bored with it. I don't know. But anyway, the point being is this. I've had discussions with all three of those groups of people. And I have ministered or shared in multiple ways to all three of those groups of people. Um, I could tell you experiences or anecdotes about times that I have been stern with truth. And I could tell you stories about when I have been sympathetic with grace. And in both cases, it has been received well sometimes and been completely rejected in others. Here's another uncomfortable truth that comes to when we're dealing with this stuff is, but it's a reality. Um, how we respond in these situations oftentimes is not as much as we would like to think so. It's not really about what we think is the right way to do it. It has more to do with our personalities. Okay. If you are a, you know, the, the kind of person who's just like black and white, cerebral facts don't care about your feelings, that's probably just the way that you're going to respond to a lot of issues. And then there are other people who are shades of gray, em, uh, empathizing. Uh, I, I, I feel for you. I care for you. Those type of people, they're going to respond in another way. But the truth is this, probably that's just a function of our personalities. Uh, it, we're not even doing those things sometimes out of what we are thinking of as the best way to reach people. We're just acting out of our own personalities and, and characters, all right? But at the end of the day, you don't know how God is going to use those things. You might be stern sometimes if somebody says, thank you for telling me the truth. And another person might say, you're the worst. You might be gracious sometimes and say, you know, nobody's ever shown me kindness on these issues. They've always been judgmental. And another person might say, I'm finally glad to find somebody who lets me, gives me license to do whatever I want to, right? Those things happen all the time on both sides. And there's no way really that you can go into it knowing how the people are going to respond. Paul sure didn't. I don't think Paul, look at verse 13. So it says verse 13. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So in terms of unforeseen consequences, do you think when Paul got arrested or when he appealed to Caesar, like in his mind was, you know what I'm going to do? The whole Imperial Guard is going to know about Jesus because of me. I don't think he was thinking that. That was not on his radar. He was just thinking about how to get to Rome, how to get the, the message to a larger audience, even up to, yes, probably the imperial level. But he wasn't thinking about the imperial guard specifically. And yet the effect of this tack that Paul has gone on 
is that he says the entire Imperial Guard know about him now and about the fact that he's been in prison for Christ. So what is that probably referring to? I don't think it's saying that Paul has individually witnessed or shared Christ with all what could be as many as 9,000 Imperial Guards in the city of Rome. I don't think that's the case. But what I think has happened is this. Paul, not realizing it, his story has gotten out. So Paul is there. He's under house arrest. Some guards are coming, interchanging out for him. They're going back to their company commanders and their their leaders or whatever and telling about this guy named Paul. And what are they telling? They're saying, man, he's, he's not some common rebel, all right? He's not some religious madman either. This guy, Paul, who has appealed to Caesar to vindicate his, his faith, man, he is he's devoted, he's rational, he's principled, he's a man of conviction. He's here to plead the truth of his case and really plead the truth of his faith. These are guards who are probably used to seeing a very different class of people here, okay? They are used to seeing something probably in between these, like, cutthroat revolutionaries or Machiavellian politicians who have ended up on the wrong side of something. That's the kind of guys who are probably, they're used to seeing under house arrest there standing before Caesar. But they look at this guy and they say, Paul's not like this. Um, and, and then they watch the way Paul lives, the way he shares, he explains. They watch his character displayed as he's under house arrest for maybe several years even the way he lives faithfully in front of these guards, the way his friends come and minister to him and sacrifice, like we talked about last week, about how Epaphroditus comes from another place just to help and serve and minister and give for Paul. And these people start to take notice. And they start to tell other people about it. And some of them are intrigued by Paul. And some of them are convinced by Paul. And they actually become followers of Jesus Christ themselves. So again, do you think that Paul had in, had the Imperial Guard in mind as his intended audience when he appealed to Caesar and headed for Rome? Probably not. And yet that's the way that God decided to use Paul's witness. And that's not even all that God has done because something else interesting has happened that probably Paul would have not expected and not looked for. Look at verse 14. While Paul probably didn't expect it, we, after 2,000 years of church history, probably could expect it. We shouldn't be surprised by it. Verse 14 says, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So thinking about this reality, I don't know about you guys. This is I'm talking to the guys now, probably mostly. So when you asked a girl out for the first time, right, it was probably terrifying. Um, and I don't know how uh, slick you were, um, but I was not. And so uh, I didn't have a lot of luck in the beginning with asking girls out. And um, I found myself in a situation right before I, um, there was a summer and I'd asked a girl out and she had shot me down, right? And then there was fall and I met another girl and I asked her out and she shot me down, okay? And then I met Christy. And I was like, man, there's this really pretty, um, accomplished, she's president of sorority, you know, all these things, right? And I was like, this girl's probably out of my league, right? But you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to shoot my shot. Um, why? Because why not? I've been rejected. I know what the cost of these things are. What's the worst that could happen to me? What's the worst that could happen? She says, no. 
I'm willing to risk that. So I asked her out. Okay. You might go, Ash, what does that have to do with the, with Philippians? Well, you know what's happened is Paul's imprisonment has emboldened the believers in Rome to be more direct and more evangelistic with their faith. We would think it would be the opposite. If Christians are getting arrested, oftentimes you would think, well, that probably is going to make people shut up, right? It's going to make people not talk about Jesus. But in Rome, it's had the opposite effect. As Paul is standing in prison, awaiting trial, it's made the believers in Rome more bold to share their faith. We know as, as Christians living today that that phrase that gets pops up in, in, in church history studies, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, right? But the blood of the martyrs is not the only seed of the church. The sweat and tears of the martyrs is also the seed of the church. And I think the reality is, is um, as believers hear about Paul's trials, that puts a fire under it. And we see this over and over again in church history. The stories of hardship don't dissuade devotion. They encourage it because it makes people recognize the cost, recognize what's at stake, and then start to step up in these situations. Now, again, does that always happen? No, but it does here. But I bet you Paul wasn't thinking about that. Paul wasn't thinking, well, I can't wait to be arrested because then that way everybody's going to get excited about Jesus. That's probably not how he was thinking, but that's how God used it. A couple of years ago, we did a uh, All Saints sermon on Anne and Adoniram Judson. So they were Baptist missionaries from the United States to what at the time was the nation of uh, Burma, which is now Myanmar. But Anne and Adoniram had an incredibly um, fruitful ministry among the Burmese people. There are many of those countries where those early missionaries went and they toiled for years and, and saw almost no fruit, even though they set a groundwork for things. Not Anne and Adoniram, man. They had a lot of blessing and, and benefit from it. And by the time they, they died, there was a thriving church um, in, in Burma. And there is to this day, a huge portion of people are not only Christians, specifically they were Baptists in the nation of Burma today because of the continuing influence of Anne and Adoniram. But but a thing happened in their ministry. If you remember the story, many of you weren't even here then, but um, Anne got sick during their time there. She was so sick she had to come back home to convalesce and, and regain her health. But she didn't want to waste her time. So while she was there, she wrote a book about the trials and tribulations that they experienced, which were many and diverse, um, while they were in Burma. She published a book and sent it out, and, and people started reading about the Judsons in Burma. And again, guess what happened? People didn't read that book and go, wow, what horrible lives and things they're enduring. I never want to go be a missionary. That sounds like the worst. That's not what happened. People read the story of the Judsons and said, I want to go. I want to serve. I want to step up and, and, and live a life of sacrifice like the Judsons did. And so that is exactly the way that God is using it among the people of Rome. Paul is saying, I would have never thought this, but God is using my imprisonment to embolden the, the believers in Rome. And so again, there may be critical voices out there. I know that there are people out there who are saying, Paul, you should have never gotten yourself into this situation, but God is using it to spread the gospel. 
But again, kind of to summarize, we don't, we never know how these things are going to work out. We don't know how God is going to use them. We don't know if people are going to say thank you for our testimony or if they're going to say you're a Nazi. Um, we don't know if we are going to be seen as principled heroes for the things that we do and say, or if we're going to be seen as bigoted villains. And I don't think this passage is trying to predict that either. That's not the point of this. There's not any way you can predict it. There's no way you can know how God is going to use these things. So you might say, well, cool, Ash, there's no way of knowing. So what are you saying? Just do whatever you want to do, right? And just get out there and say whatever you want to say and, and, and let the chips fall where they may. Well, no, I think there's actually some things that we can learn in this passage and the rest of it. Maybe some broad points that while broad are also centering on this issue and comforting for us at the same time. And the first one is this, starting in verse 15. The first one is this, always put the gospel first. Lead with the gospel. The gospel is preeminent. What does he say in verse 15? Some indeed preach Christ from envy or rivalry. Others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So Paul points out that his imprisonment has revealed a certain pettiness in the church in Rome. It is revealed that there are some suspect kind of motives in some of the leaders in the church in Rome. So obviously when, when we're in a situation, anytime somebody does something, right? You look at that person and you say, they do, they, they attempt something. Let's say it goes badly. What do we usually say? We say, well, you know, I know things turned out really bad, but they had good motives, right? We, we want to, if we're trying to be magnanimous and gracious, we say, well, well, they had good motives, right? They wanted things to turn out for good. They just ended up turning out for bad. Except here's the problem. We also know that sometimes people don't have good motives. We know for a fact sometimes that they actually have sinful or selfish or unkind reasons for doing these things. And normally, if people have impure motives and they do things and they turn out bad, we would say that's a good reason to, to condemn their actions or whatever. So I don't have anything to do with that person. That person has impure motives and they've done these things. I don't have anything to do with them, right? Here's the crazy thing, though. It's not what Paul says. Paul basically says, I don't care about their motives. I don't care why they did it. That's weird because Christians are supposed to care about motives. That's a big thing in the Christian faith. What's going on in your heart and in your head, not just your actions, is an important thing. But Paul doesn't seem to care about that. It's not what's primary to Paul. These people's motives is not the main issue. Now let's first off clarify real quick who Paul is pointing to. Paul is not talking about false teachers. Okay? He's not talking about false teachers. That is, he is not talking about people who are presenting a false gospel or a distorted gospel. Paul, if you read the New Testament a little bit, he is never sympathetic to false teachers. In fact, some of the most harsh comments in the New Testament are Paul talking to false teachers, okay? Paul is never on board with false teachers, but he's not talking about false teachers. In this passage, he's talking about true teachers, people who are accurately presenting the gospel, people who are telling people the truth of the gospel. However, they're not doing it out of the most virtuous or noble motives. 
So again, it seems to be the case that some people are using Paul's imprisonment, and we'll say it in a crass way, to try to gain some ministry market share while he's in there. Remember, Paul didn't plant this church. So all of a sudden, hotshot, world-renowned preacher evangelist shows up in your town, and he starts doing stuff. And you know what probably happens, I can only assume? The established ministers and churches who were there, many of them started saying, you know what, we were doing okay before Paul got here. Things were going fine, we were ministering, we were reaching people, everything was going good. And then Paul shows up and brings all this bad press, he draws all this attention onto this trial that's going to go on. And you know what, we were fine before Paul got here. Now, again, I'm sure that nothing like this ever happens in the church today. Like that nothing like that ever happens in the church today. I'm sure no church would ever attempt to like steal sheep from another congregation or convince people to leave their church and join another congregation. I'm sure pastors never clamor for notoriety and press in, in the modern church. I'm sure the church members are never enticed by the flash or the polish of other ministries or other teachers. I'm sure that pastors would never feel threatened by those realities and have jealous thoughts or, or, or be threatened by a more gifted or more influential pastor in their own town. I'm sure none of that happens today, but I think that's basically what's going on with Paul in Rome. But here's the deal. You know what Paul says to all that? Verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. Again, he's basically saying, I I don't care about all that drama. I'm not worried about that. What's most important? What's most important? The gospel. The gospel is most important. If the gospel is preached, if Christ is proclaimed, then Paul rejoices in that. Now, again, in some ways that may be a little too strong. I'm not saying that Paul doesn't care about any of this stuff at all, right? Paul cares about character. He cares about motives. He cares about unity. He cares about public image in the community of Christ in the church. And the Bible has lots of things to say about all those topics. And Paul has lots of things to say throughout his letters about all those topics. But the truth is, is this, none of those things are as important as the proclamation of the gospel. At the very top, the most important, the most vital is the proclamation of the gospel and the truth of Jesus Christ. And so if if a a pastor or a ministry in, in our community is speaking out of guilt or social pressure, or to get likes, or to virtue signal, or to build a platform, like we would all look at those things and say, that none of that's ideal, right? That's not the way that would be ideal for this. But then Paul would ask us, yeah, but is the gospel proclaimed? I know that guy out of there may not have the best motives. He seems like he's doing this for certain lesser motives, but is the gospel being proclaimed? If the gospel is being proclaimed, that's what's most important, and therefore we can rejoice in that. We don't have to be critical of every single aspect of every single church, right? 
We need to put what's most important out front, and we can rejoice and truly be happy that Christ is being proclaimed in any one of those situations. So, right, you guys, most of you guys know me pretty well. You know my camps. You know my tribes. You know the the theological cliques and organizations that I sort of engage with and, and, and the categories that I fall into. But I would like to think that I can look around Blount County and I might find any number of churches or ministers and say, mm, man, I don't like the way they do that. That seems a little bit wrong. That seems even maybe unbiblical in certain situations. I don't think that's the best way to do it. But if that church is preaching the gospel, then I hope that I and we could say, man, I rejoice in that. I rejoice that the gospel is being preached, even if we disagree or even if there are negative motives in one way or another. Honestly, it begs the bigger question for us. What is the goal? What is, what is at the top? What is the pinnacle of everything in your life? Our families, our church. What's your definition of success or joy or fulfillment? What is it that cannot be compromised ever? The answer to that question is the gospel. The gospel is the thing that sits there. It's the thing that we cannot change or move or compromise on. And if we do, nothing else below it matters. The gospel sits above every motive, every means, every goal, every outcome. So you might say, well, we compromised the gospel a little bit, but we got some good stuff out of it. No, you didn't. It doesn't matter. The outcomes don't matter if the gospel is compromised. Well, we're going to do some things that may not be, and they may not be the, the, the best way of doing it, but I think the gospel is being preached. Okay, well, then we can at least rejoice that the gospel is being preached. So what I would say is in this larger question of how do we, how do we share with the world? How do we balance loving and, and truth? The first guiding principle as we uneasily engage with the world is give people the gospel. All right. Focus on the gospel. Don't try to just change their morality. Don't try to change their political thoughts or their social habits. Give them the gospel every single time. That's a, a, a broad governing principle for all of this. Was Paul's appeal to Caesar a wise thing? Is it a good idea? What will be the effect of it? Are the naysayers right that it's going to end negatively? Has Paul acted in a way that has unnecessarily brought difficulty to the church? Paul says, all I know is that the gospel has been proclaimed and it's spreading in various ways throughout the city of Rome because of these things. And so in that, I rejoice, okay? So that's the first thing. The first general principle, lead with the gospel. But there's one other thing that we could say too, and, and, it's, and it's how Paul closes this whole passage that we're looking at in verse 19. We put the gospel first, and then what do we do? We put these things in God's hands. We prayerfully... Trust that God is going to accomplish his will, and we hand it over to him. Verse 19, he says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So here's the deal. Paul is convinced that his arrest and trial will end in his deliverance. Is it going to turn out good? Is it going to turn out bad, not only for Paul or for the whole church? Paul is convinced that all these things are going to work out for his deliverance. But why? 
Why does Paul trust that? Is it because Paul's like, I strategized this thing out, man. I thought of all the best tactics and strategy that we could do, and I'm going to present this thing before Caesar, and that was his master plan? No, that's not why he thinks things are going to work out. Why does he think they're going to work out? Because of the prayerfulness of God's people and the goodness and sovereignty of God. That's why things are going to work out. God is going to use these things and work them for good, not because he was wise or strategic, but because God is good and gracious and God's people are going to pray for these things and God is going to answer their prayers. And so that would be the second thing that I would say to you is I'd say, when you're doing this, when you're thinking of, man, how do I engage this person? How do I engage with the world? How do I speak truth in love? What do I do? The answer is twofold. One, you lead with the gospel every single time. And two, you prayerfully submit it to the goodness and sovereignty of God and say, God, I ask that you work these things out. Even if I do something stupid, okay? Even if I say something wrong, even if I mess it up in some way, God, I ask that you would still use it and make it um, all come, come out the way that you would have it. God will work it out. God will even work through our mistakes. You'll do things stupid. And say things wrong sometimes. And even those events, even events that seem too broken to be fixed, right? Even those situations that are too tainted by our own selfishness and sinfulness and stupidity, man, God will use those to fulfill his plans too. He will, now we don't set out that way. We don't set out saying, well, I'm just going to say something dumb and let God fix it or whatever. That's not the point. But the point is, we end up saying dumb things accidentally on our own all the time. We don't set out to do that, but it's the way things end up working out. And so we say, I can't control these things. I'm going to be thoughtful, right? I'm going to to be concerned about how to speak truth in love. But at the end of the day, I'm going to hand it over to God. Now, I know this is the case, and this is why these two things are so important, is because usually what we end up doing is we get analysis paralysis, and we are so worried about saying the wrong thing that we end up saying nothing ever. We don't share, we don't serve, we don't help, we don't do anything. We go, well, I don't want to be too strong. Well, I don't want to be too wishy. Well, I don't know. You know what? I'm just going to not say anything. And then nothing is said, and nothing happens from these things. You can't worry about all the possible outcomes every single time. You can't always be concerned or, or predict, I guess is a better way of saying it, that things are going to work out right, or at least the way you want them to. So what do we do? We're thoughtful. We're concerned. But we put the gospel first. Make everything that you say saturated with the gospel. And once the gospel's out front, we prayerfully hand it over to God and say, God, I ask that you would use this. I trust that you are sovereignly working out your plans, that you're working these things out for the good of me and for those who hear, and that you are going to use this in some way, shape, or form, and I trust it to you. And that's what we do. That's what Paul's doing in, in Rome. And that's what he trusts that God is going to do, even in the midst of this crazy situation with his arrest. So what I want to do is just go to the Lord in prayer.
um, and ask that he would work these things in our hearts. Probably the case is, as many of you, I got a feeling probably already know this instinctively, right? If you're a follower of Jesus and you've been reading his word, you have a sense that, yeah, that's how you do this. You, you, you present Christ to people in the gospel and then you prayerfully ask God to work. That's what we do. But I think another key is you, you can't predict the outcome. And so don't let your worry about the outcome silence you so that the message is never out there. Because if you do, I can guarantee you what the outcome will be. And the outcome will be nothing. Nothing will happen. If we say nothing, nothing will happen. If we say something, some people might get mad, some people might be blessed, but we'll leave that in God's hands. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, ask that he would work in our lives in these ways, encourage us in these things, that we would be thoughtful and prayerful, but that we would be gospel-focused and leave these things in God's hands. Father, I think it is the case that our many times our thoughtfulness has made us fearful. Not that our thoughtfulness is a bad thing. We should be conscientious, and yet we have overthought these things, and in so doing, we are afraid to say anything. We are afraid that our words will be used against us. We are afraid that we will hinder people's walk and faith and journey towards Christ or maybe even accelerate their journey away from Christ. God, we leave these things in your hands. Help us to speak in truth and in love with all the complexities that come in light of those things. And as we do so, God, let us put the gospel forward that we would not be here to to change hearts and minds initially on some sort of position because lord the reality is, is at the end of the day um a heart that has believed a moral truth and yet has not turned to jesus christ for salvation is a dead end that our morality won't save us, and it certainly won't save a lost and dying world. That only Jesus Christ and his gospel will save. So help us to put Jesus Christ first, to share the gospel with people, to tell them the good news that though they are sinners, Jesus Christ has died for them. That he loves them, that he has sacrificed for them, and that he calls them into a sanctifying relationship with him. And God, as we tell the gospel to people, and that you would do your work, that the Spirit would work where the Spirit wants to work, that he would awaken hearts, that he would convict of sin, God, that he would 
help people to see the the bankruptcy and the the uselessness of their own efforts and that people would be cast upon Jesus Christ for salvation. God help us to be faithful witnesses of these things. And we trust you to work as you will. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I could never These things are just in his soul. Till I That's <laughs> This has been Thank you.
Amen. Um, so the next next verse that we're getting into next week. So Philippians is, I mean, obviously it's all God's word, right? And so every single uh, jot and tittle of it is is uh, important and and God breathed. But next week's passage is one of the ones that if you're familiar with Philippians, you probably um, are aware of. And there's another one that's going to come a little bit later when we talk about the humility of Christ. But next week will be one that you're aware of, and because it's crazy. Paul says, you know, I said earlier, uh, well, you know, motives aren't, I don't, wor- I'm not worried about the motives. Uh, that's not what's most important. The gospel is what's most important. It gets way worse than that, right? Next week, he says, I don't even care about life or death. That doesn't matter. The gospel matters. And if the gospel is preached, then come life, come death, doesn't matter. Um, so it gets heavier, right? Um, but, but more glorious at the same time. So hope you'll be here next week as we, as we jump into chapter two. Um, have a great week. Um, hope to see you at all the things going on in the next, uh, this week and next week. This and next. Um, and, um, again, hope to see you next week. Here's benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn his face towards you and give you peace. See you next week.
Well, 
And he was, uh, 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 he was,